You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. All right, New City. Welcome. My name is Caleb. I'm glad that you're here this morning. I'm a member here at New City, and uh, Nick has asked me to preach. Uh, the, the Vulcanings are out of town. He's preaching at Red Hill Church, his, the church that he was sent from this week, and so you get the second or third stringer this week. So um, hopefully you can stay awake. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Ezra. We're going to be in Ezra chapter 7 this morning. Ezra chapter 7. As you turn there, I want to just give a quick summary of kind of what's going on here. In case maybe this is your first time uh, this morning, or maybe you're just not that familiar with kind of the biblical uh, historical context of what's happening here in the book of Ezra, okay? Let's take a couple minutes and, and just rehash what's going on. So very early in the history of the nation of Israel, okay? So this is back, you know, King Saul was the first king of Israel, then King David, then King Solomon. After King Solomon... The nation of Israel was divided, okay, into two separate kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. There's all kinds of reasons for that. We won't get into it. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah, okay? So when you read the books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you see um, kind of these two different paths, right? They'll talk about a king. He was the king of Israel. This king was the king of Judah, okay? So there's two separate kingdoms. Then in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was attacked by Assyria, and captives were taken to Assyria. Thousands of people were killed. Um, you can read about that in the book of 2 Kings. And then in 586 BC, uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, was attacked. By that time, it was Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar came in, sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took people captive to Babylon, Okay. So, about 70 years after that, we come to the book of Ezra. That's where we're at. And so, the, the first um, return, so there's exiles that were in Babylon. They returned back to Jerusalem. That first return was in Ezra um, chapter 5 and 6. Okay, that's what Nick preached on a couple weeks ago. And so, today we're going to read about the second return under the, the leader of Ezra. So this happened about 57 years later. So even though you go from chapter 6 to 7, it's like the very next word, right? This is actually, it's been about 57 years since Passover was celebrated from the previous chapter, okay? So if you have your Bibles, um, please stand with me. We're going to begin in Ezra uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Now, uh, my text this morning is actually all the way through 814, Okay. We're not going to read that far, okay? We're going to stop at the end of chapter 7, which is still a lot of reading, okay? So shake out your arms, shake out your legs. We're going to be standing for a minute. We've got a lot to read, um, but it could be longer. So um, just remember, um, cutting some out for you. So the, in Ezra chapter 8, it's a whole bunch of names. It's not that those names aren't important. We just only have so much time, okay? So let's begin Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Saraiah, son of Azariah, 
son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Meriath, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in the matters of commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, peace And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem." with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall, with all diligence, buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the the river, Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cords of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you, that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach." Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, 
the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give light to our eyes now. Help us to see Jesus all over this text. May we trust in your sovereign, providential, covenant-keeping hand today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We are living in strange times, are we not? The theme this morning has already been the steadfast love of God. Though the storms may come, though the wind may blow, he remains steadfast. My title this morning is The Covenant-Keeping God. You know, the last two years, no doubt, have been confusing, frustrating at times. The pandemic that seems to never end, masks, vaccines, the political battles surrounding it, a contentious election, civil unrest, rioting in the streets, even in our own city. Schools and businesses closed, jobs lost, rising costs of living. And just, just when things seem to be turning a corner, right? We're kind of getting out of this. People are talking about ending all of this, some of this nonsense. Now we have the situation in Ukraine. And only God knows how that's going to progress and what the future implications will be. But and do you ever question whether God knows what he is doing? Do you ever look around the world and just lose hope? And I'd be lying if sometimes, if I said I didn't. Does it feel like we are really all alone, that God has abandoned us, or maybe, maybe he is in control, right? Maybe God is in control, but he doesn't love us. So he's just a tyrant. Or maybe he loves us, but he's not in control. He means well, he just isn't, isn't powerful enough to do anything. But New City, my hope today is for us to see that not only is God a loving God who keeps his covenant, but he is a sovereign God. And he is directing all things for his glory and our good, whether we see it now in this moment or not. There is no king, no president, no political movement outside of his control, and he will accomplish all his purposes in your individual life, in the life of our church, in the life of your family, in the life of our nation, in this universe. To see this, I want us to consider three truths from this passage today. First, the providential hand of God. We see it here in Ezra 7, the providential hand of God. Second, the foundational law of God. And third, the steadfast love of God. So first, let's look at the providential hand of God here in Ezra chapter 7. Look with me real quick in verse 6. Ezra 7, verse 6. We see these words, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Talking about Ezra. The hand of the Lord his God was on him. Look in verse 9. For the good hand of his God was on him. Look in verse 28. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Do you see a pattern here? 
Look in chapter 8, verse 18. I know we didn't read this, but we see again, by the good hand of their God on them. Chapter 8, verse 22, the hand of their God is for good. In verse 31 of chapter 8, the hand of their God was on them. Do you think Ezra wants us to see something about the hand of God today? We cannot miss what's going on here. God is clearly the one who is in charge. Not Ezra, not the king, not the people of Assyria or Israel. God is at work in his providential care. Now, this word providence I've used, or providential, it simply means God's active guidance in bringing out his purpose for all things. God's active guidance in bringing about his purpose for all things. God is not passively guiding. God is actively guiding all all of human history to accomplish his will and his purposes. Now, it's supposed to shock us when we read this passage and we see what these pagan kings are doing. King Artaxerxes was not an Israelite. He didn't worship the one true God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, like other pagan Persian kings of his day, he considered himself to be a God. The Persian kings considered themselves to be human embodiments of the sun God. And yet, here, he is not only allowing Ezra to return to Jerusalem, he's allowing whoever else Ezra wants to take. That's what he says. Anybody who wants to go, go. Not only that, he's allowing them to rebuild the temple and reinstitute Jewish worship. And not only that, he's fully funding the trip and all the temple furnishings, which Nebuchadnezzar had removed and taken to Babylon. And not only that, he's encouraging Ezra to teach the law of God and appoint others to reestablish Jewish civil government. And not only that, he is forbidding anyone to collect taxes, tolls, and custom from them. <laughs> that should blow our minds this morning. What would ever, what would ever cause a pagan king who thinks he's a god to send these people back to reinstitute exclusive worship of the one true God? It's no wonder Ezra's response in verse 27 is this, blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. This is an amazing work of God here. We cannot miss it. After being captives in a foreign land for over a hundred years, they're finally being allowed to return and they're blessed beyond anything they could ever have imagined. And who is in charge here? Who's in charge of these world leaders making these massive decisions affecting thousands of people? God is. The hand of God is actively bringing about his providential plans. See, from a human perspective, it seems as though everyone is doing what they want to do because they are, right? King Artaxerxes is doing exactly what he wants to do. Ezra is doing exactly what he wants to do. And yet, behind 
And underneath all of it, they are doing exactly what God wants them to do. Do you remember the story of Joseph? We're not going to rehash the whole thing. It's a crazy story. Sold into slavery, traded to the Egyptians, eventually gets thrown into prison for being falsely accused. Eventually, he rises up to be second in command in Egypt. Gets to the end of his life, or, or he's, he, towards the end of his life, he saves his brothers who sold him into slavery. And this is what he tells his brothers. He says, what you meant for evil, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. You did exactly what you wanted, but you meant it for evil. You did exactly what God wanted you to do, but he meant it for good. Isn't that amazing? Friends, we can't make sense of the Bible. We can't make sense of the Bible if we don't read it this way, okay? God is in control. Proverbs 21 says this, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Friends, how different would our lives be if we actually lived in light of this glorious truth? That if the hand of God is for us, who can be against us? What would we have to fear? What if we lived with a radical confidence in the sovereign plan of God? Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. What if we were unmoved by fear because we knew that our God is in the heavens? He is in charge. Think about big things like what's taking place on the world stage right now. Every decision, every world leader, every fighter jet, every bullet, every square inch belongs to our God. He is in charge. Are you anxious or angry about the political climate in our country? I am. (laughs) I get angry. Are you anxious or angry about rising gas prices or inflation and the cost of living? Or are you anxious or angry about somebody who's hurt you in your life or a relationship that's gone wrong? What about the future? John Flavel, in his book, he was a Puritan writer. In his book, The Mystery of Providence, he says this, Two things destroy the peace and tranquility of our lives. One, our regretting of past disappointments. And two, the fearing of future ones. Think about that. Two things destroy our peace and tranquility. The things that we have done in our past or have been done to us. And two, the things that we are fearful of in the future. All those past experiences that still haunt you, all those things you've done that you regret or perhaps those things that you've, you have been done to you will lose their power over your soul. They don't have to control you. A huge part of the reason we struggle with anxiety is because we live with a small view of God's providence over all things. We say things like God is in control, but we live as though he is not. We live as though we have to grasp at control because we really don't think God has got this. But this text, friends, today reminds us, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God. The good hand of our God is on your life. 
we have nothing to fear. Psalm 112, the righteous will never be moved. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Friends, imagine living with that kind of confidence. We can have confidence today that no matter what circumstances we are in, no matter what bad news we might hear, no matter what is troubling our souls, we have a God who is in control. His plans are always for our good, and they will be accomplished. But number two, the second thing we see in this passage is the foundational law of God. The foundational law of God. What was Ezra actually doing when he and the others returned to Jerusalem? What was their task? We see that they were bringing a whole bunch of stuff, right? Bringing a whole bunch of money from the king. They were, they were to buy bulls and rams, okay, for, for temple worship and temple sacrifice. He was to teach others the law of God. So in short, what was Ezra doing? He was reestablishing the law of God for the foundation of God's people. He was reestablishing the law of God as the foundation of of God's people. In verse 6, we see that he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. In verse 10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So when tasked with the mission to bring order and governance to God's people, where does Ezra go? Where does he place his confidence? In the revealed word of God. The text of scripture. Is this how we think of God's word? Is the word of God the very foundation of your life, of your home, of our church? What about how we think about civil government and politics? Are the scriptures our standard? Or have we adopted some other Standard. Now think about this for just a minute. What scriptures did Ezra have at this time? Okay, This happened hundreds of years before Jesus, right? Didn't have any of the New Testament. Okay, So he had the law of Moses. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. He probably had some other writings, some prophetical writings, maybe some other historical writings. But for what we know, he had the law of Moses. Now, what if you were given the task that Ezra was given? Put yourself in his place. There's several thousand people in Jerusalem waiting for you. And when you get there, it's your job to reestablish a religious community, set up a civil government, appoint leaders, and teach people what you think they need to know. How would you do it? What would be your authority? Would it be this book? Friends, the word of God is sufficient for us. Ezra placed his confidence in the revealed text of Scripture. I mean, for Ezra, like what better time, right? To reimagine, let's reimagine a new, more inclusive civil life, right? Let's just throw some of this out, right? Let's, 
we really need to go back to this, to the law of Moses? Can't we, can we just reimagine a more inclusive life? Or, or what better time to evolve on the exclusive claims of Scripture, right? Do people really need to repent of sin? Do people really need to be circumcised? Do we really need to reinstitute temple worship and animal sacrifice? That's not what Ezra does. No, his task is to bring God's word to bear on the lives of God's people because God's word is sufficient. He brings them back to the revealed word of God. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, 178 verses, 176 verses. Every single verse is extolling and praising the law of God. Here's just a taste. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. I keep your precepts. Uh, I hold back my feet from every evil way to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules. How sweet are your words to my taste. Friends, do we think of the law of God this way? Do we think of the law of Moses this way? We're, we're missing out on a huge part of the Old Testament if we don't. Friends, the revealed word of God is meant to be the foundation of our lives. Remember, this was written hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus and the writings of the New Testament. Is this how we view the sacred writings? The law of God? Do you see what Ezra saw, that the word of God, including the Old Testament, is a sufficient foundation for you and your family and our entire culture? You see, we have been given the same task. Think about this. We have been given the same task that Ezra is taking up here, to bring the word of God to bear on the culture where we have been placed. It's the same thing. Do you read it? Do you know it? Can you teach it? Do you long for the word of God like the author of Psalm 119? Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Friends, whatever people are in your life that don't know the Lord, God has placed them there so that you can bring them to the revealed word of God. And it can become the foundation for their lives. Where else can we go when we have in our hands the words of eternal life? Don't neglect the word of God. And last, third, we see in this passage the steadfast love of God. So we see the providential hand of God. We see the foundational law of God. And we see the steadfast love of God. 
Notice how Ezra describes the gracious work of God on his behalf in verse 28. Look at what he says there in verse 28. And who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. This term steadfast love in Hebrew, it's hesed, right? You probably heard that heard that term before, the hesed love of God. It's, it's found all throughout the Old Testament. It's a specific word that describes the constant faithfulness of God in showing mercy to his people, delivering them from trials, forgiving their sin, and blessing them with his divine favor. The hesed love of God. Over and over in the Old Testament, we, we hear these words, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the Hesed love of God. This steadfast faithfulness was central to the Jewish identity. Now, how important is this Hesed love of God? Think about this for a moment. What if God, remember my first point, the providential hand of God, what if God was providentially in control of all things, but he wasn't loving. Consider that for a moment. Consider the kind of leader that could control every aspect of your life, but he hated you. Or he was indifferent. He didn't care. He would be a terrifying God. Now, was my second point. God gave us his law, right? What if God gives us his law and he expects perfect obedience, which he does, but he wasn't loving? Imagine that kind of God. He would be a tyrant. You see, the steadfast love of God is what makes God's providence and, and God's law good news. You see how God's love changes everything? God is a covenant-keeping God. The Hesed love of God changes everything. He keeps his covenant even when we do not. You see, this return to Jerusalem, the fact that they are leaving Babylon and going back to Jerusalem is evidence that God keeps his covenant because... I don't know if you know this, but God promised his people this would happen hundreds of years before it happened. If you have time this afternoon, go back and read Isaiah 44 and 45. In those chapters, the prophet Isaiah tells us that God is going to raise up a king named Cyrus to deliver his people and bring about his plan. Now remember the name of the first king in the book of Ezra. What was his name? Cyrus, okay? And what's so amazing about this is that the book of Isaiah was written 250 years before Cyrus was ever born. And Isaiah names him by name. He's going to come. I'm going to use him to accomplish my purposes in redeeming and restoring my people. God keeps his promises, church. It's right here in Scripture. Do you see it? He is a covenant-keeping God. 
The steadfast love of God changes everything. So friends, maybe you're here and you hear these, these things about the covenant-keeping God and all you can think about is how you're a covenant-breaker and you are, as am I. When you hear about the good providence of God, you think, surely there's no way God is working all things for my good. I don't deserve that. And you're right, you don't. Or maybe when you hear about the law of God, the only thing that comes to mind is how you've broken it. You haven't loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You haven't lived up to his holy standard. Surely I don't deserve God's faithfulness when I've lived in disobedience and rebellion to him for so long. And you're right, you don't. But that is what makes the beauty of the gospel so amazing, friends. God's steadfast love toward you is completely, you've got to get this, completely independent of your ability to earn it. That's the point. That's what grace is. It is completely undeserved favor. God chooses to be merciful and gracious according to his own free sovereign will, not because of anything you have done to deserve it. That's good news for us, friends. It's good news for me because I'm a wretched sinner. But how? How does he do this? Well, it's because about 500 years after this book of Ezra, a baby was born in Bethlehem to a young virgin. His name was Jesus. You see, in every way that you and I have failed to live up to God's law, he succeeded. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, not one sinful word, not one wayward thought, constant, unbroken fellowship with his Father. He fulfilled every word of God's law. And when he came to the end of his life, he was so hated by the false, fake, religious leaders of his day, they had him arrested, beaten, tortured, and crucified. And when he died, he actually bore the sin of his people on the cross. That means the punishment that you deserve for your covenant breaking, Jesus took on himself. The pure, spotless lamb of God became sin for us, for you. And after bearing that awful weight of sin on the cross, this Jesus rose from the dead three days later in victory he appeared to his disciples and he ascended into heaven where he sits and he rules and he reigns over all things. We're told in the book of John that this Jesus was the light of the world who comes to give light to his people. Anyone who believes in his name becomes a child of God. Our sins are forgiven because of his shed blood and his righteous life is counted as ours. Friends, this is the good news of the Christian faith. Anyone who turns to Jesus will be forgiven. All of those things in your past that cause you to fear, to doubt, to question, to feel condemned, can be laid at the feet of the cross. And his righteous life can be counted as yours so that when the Father looks down on you, he doesn't see a wretched, rebellious sinner. He sees the righteous life of his Son in your place. And you are counted a son or a daughter of the Father.
If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, today is the day of salvation for you, friend. Turn from sin. Trust in him. But I know many of you here today are believers. So I want to ask you a different question. Do you find that you lack courage in these days? Man, I do. A huge part, I mean, if you know me very well, you know, a big part of me just wants to sell everything, go into the wilderness, and never see another soul, right? I do. I just, I just want to give up and say, you know what? Just let it all go. I just, I'll just go, I don't know how to do any of that, but like, I need like Dan Garan with me. Can you can help me like skin a deer or something. I don't know how to do any of that. Um, sounds great though. But uh, do you find that you lack courage? I do. I lack courage. You know? Um, my thoughts are full of fear, confusion, because of what's going on in the world. It's hard to make sense of it. Do it, it, you feel like you can't trust anybody? Right? You read things online. You're like, I don't know if that's true. Right? You hear somebody talk. I don't know if that's true. We're, you can't trust anybody, it seems. Look one more time at the last sentence in chapter 7. We're almost done. This is Ezra speaking here about himself. He says, the last sentence, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Where did Ezra's courage to obey God's call come from? He was confident in the providential hand of God. Friends, I don't know what God's calling you to do today, but I want you to know that when the hand of God is on your life, you have nothing to fear. You are invincible. Do you get that? You are invincible until God decides otherwise, and his decisions are always good. When we are confident in the providence of God, when we are standing firmly on the foundation of the law of God, and when our hearts have been changed by the grace of God, we are filled with courage to take bold risks for the sake of the gospel. We don't have to run and hide. We can move into enemy territory. So friends, let's do that today. Let's do that this week. Let's take the law of God without fear to our friends, our family, our neighbors, to those sitting next to us. Let's pour over it. Let's study it. Let's know it. Let's live with radical obedience in the midst of these dangerous and hard times. Whatever, is, whatever God is calling you to do, do it with all of your might. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We need Jesus. So, Father, God, I pray that now as we respond to this message, you would um, move in our hearts, Lord, to respond to what you are calling us to do. Fill us with courage this morning. Courage because we know that you are sovereign and in control of all things. Courage because we know we have your revealed word at our fingertips and you are calling us to live in obedience to it because it's good for us and good for the world. And courage because we know that you love us, that Christ died for us, that we are your children. And if you care for the birds and the flowers, how much more are you going to care for your own 
children. Lord, what promises that we have this morning. Fill us with courage and hope today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to enter a time now uh, where we do three things. We're going to reflect, we're going to remember, and we're going to rehearse. Uh, we're going to spend some time, uh, we're going to have just a, kind of a silent time here in a minute where, we're, uh, where we reflect on what we've heard. I've said a lot today. I don't know what the Lord has kind of um, picked out of the sermon and, and applied to your heart, but whatever that is, reflect on that this morning. Next, we're going to remember, we're going we're to observe the Lord's Supper. Jesus, uh, when he uh, gave the Lord's Supper to his followers, he said to do this in remembrance of me. When we take the cup, that's, re- that's representing the, the blood of Christ shed for us. When we take the bread or the wafer, that's representing the body of Christ that was broken for us. As we observe these things together, we are remembering together uh, the Lord's sacrifice. And then last, we're going to rehearse. We're going to sing with all of our might. Uh, because of what, because of the hope that we have in Jesus this morning. So, as we enter into this time, let's let's take a moment to to sit quietly, to to reflect, to remember, and then to rehearse. Thank you. <laughs>